do you know you have a problem? Well, you might feel like you have several problems. Your boss or your bank account or the political landscape or health complications or that neighbor who doesn't shovel his portion in the driveway or a teacher who just doesn't understand that you're trying your best. Maybe you thought COVID was your biggest problem, but now you're facing several new ones. We've all had problems. We're all facing them now. They're unending. And we need to remember that we have a Heavenly Father who is merciful, kind, and full of grace, and He wants to lead us through those problems. But first, He wants us to understand that our biggest problem is not something external, but internal. And we were all born with it. You could say it's genetic. We all live with this problem and its consequences every day. Unfortunately, it's a problem that we have no capacity to solve. And basically, that means that we'll live our entire lives and then die, and our biggest problem will remain. Now, I know some of you are Mr. or Miss Fix-It, and you believe there's no issue you can't tackle. But trust me, the human race has been trying for thousands of years, and we have failed and failed miserably. How's that for a sermon intro? I just wanted to get that out of the way so we could get on to the good news. And that is this, that there is one man who didn't fail, one perfect man, the Son of Man. You see, Jesus has solved the world's greatest problem. Let's go ahead and make that our big idea today. Jesus has solved your biggest problem. And what is your problem? And how has he solved it? Well, Hebrews 9.22 answers both questions. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Your biggest problem is sin, and the solution is blood. Now, as we continue deconstructing Jesus in this series on Christology, we're moving now to the theological concept of atonement. And put simply, atonement is the work Christ the Messiah did in his life and death to earn our salvation. So let's be clear. You and I, we are utterly incapable of earning our own salvation. We cannot solve our sin problem. We need Christ to do that for us. And he has done it. And that is really, really good news. And today we're going to go ahead and unpack the how and the why. And to do that, we've got to go back to the beginning in Genesis. Isn't it interesting that in order to understand Jesus, we've got to dig around the Old Testament, just like the New. It's just a plug there for the first 39 books of the Bible. Now, remember the garden, Genesis 1 and 2. God creates a perfect world. He creates a man and a woman to steward that perfect world and to enjoy perfect relationship with one another. But most importantly, he created them to be in relationship with him. And then what happens in Genesis 3? Well, sin happens. And death entered the world and evil gained a foothold and perfect peace and relationship with God that was broken. And so God sets out on the greatest of rescue missions to save the people he loves and to free them from their biggest problem, sin. And listen, sin isn't the biggest problem just because it results in terrible consequences like adultery, war, murder, stealing, envy, and cheating. Sin is a big problem for four key reasons. First, because We deserve to die as the penalty for sin. Romans 6.23 declares that the wages of sin is death. Or in the Message Bible, work hard for sin your whole life and your pension is death. Yikes. Second, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. It might make us uncomfortable, but wrath is an attribute of God. It's part of his character. He hates sin. He can't allow it. And that leads us to the third reason sin's a big problem, and that is that we are separated from God by our sins. We're separated from his love, from his hope, and from his kindness. And finally, we're in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. That's why we struggle with selfishness and pride. That's why it's so hard to love your neighbor. 
First John 1 9 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And that evil one, he's a liar. He's going to promise that sin's going to bring happiness and satisfaction and fun, but in reality, it's bringing darkness, brokenness, hurt, death. Now, I know all of that paints a dreary picture, but I believe we've got to have a proper perspective on our status. Sinners. We are sinners who cannot fix ourselves. And though we try, we will always get it wrong. Just read the Old Testament book of Judges or check your news feed. Now, you might think you're doing a pretty good job at life, that you need less saving than, say, that politician who just got elected or that criminal you just read about who got arrested. But like this red pepper that I bought yesterday, a little spot on the outside may reveal complete rot on the inside. And a little sin, well, it's still sin. And sin is our biggest problem. Romans 6.23 again, For the wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You and I and everyone in the world, we all belong in that first clause, earning death. But the second clause reveals that there is a way to change this penalty. And that's our good news. Christ Jesus solves our biggest problem. How does he do this? Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. But first I want us to ask why. Why would God extend to us a free gift, a get out of hell free card? Why has God solved your biggest problem? Well, God has provided a solution to your biggest problem because of who he is. No one deserves this free gift of eternal life. Not even close. Remember, we all deserve death, but God, in his character, he's made a plan and he's made a way for our salvation. Now, two elements of his character that make this possible are his love and his justice. So why has God solved our biggest problem? First, because he loves us. Listen to the most well-known verse of scripture, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God is love, big time love. It's his nature. And he will go on loving us though we do not deserve it. So let me ask again, why has God solved our biggest problem? Well, because he's love, yes, but also because he is just. And his justice requires that the penalty due for sin be paid. Remember, the wages of sin is death, and those wages must be paid. Only then will there be justice. And this brings us to a theological term, propitiation. This is defined as a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end, and in so doing, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. Romans 3.25 says that God sent Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. In other words, Jesus' sacrifice bears God's wrath for us so that God will be propitious towards us. He will look favorably on us. Sin deserves wrath. And so because he's just, God's provided a way for his wrath to be turned away from us. And that way is Jesus. Author and theologian David Wells has written a book called God in the Whirlwind, in which he gives an admittedly not perfect but very vivid illustration that's going to help us understand this further. He says, God's like the sun. God is so, so good and yet so, so dangerous. And so to get too close is to be destroyed unless somehow you're protected. And so David Wells likens this to the holy love of God. He makes the case that God's holiness and his love cannot be separated from one another, that God is both holy and love all the time. His holiness, now that's recognizable in his Righteousness, his faithfulness, his justice, his judgment, and his wrath. And love is recognizable in his mercy, forbearance, kindness, and compassion. And he is always, at the same time, 
all of these things in every single page of the scriptures, if you look, you're going to find both his holiness and his love. Now, in order for us sinners to approach a God of holy love, he's got to either put a damper on his holiness, like the sun trying to cover up its rays, or he must provide protection. And this is because our sin cannot enter his holy presence. So because he loves us and because he is holy, he has given us Jesus. We need a means for getting rid of our sin so that we can stand in his holy and just presence. This is just another way of describing atonement, the means by which we can be reconciled and restored to at one with the God of holy love. Jesus is the means. He alone can solve your big sin problem. He's the way in which you have at one with God. So summing this up, why has God solved your biggest problem? Because he wants at one mint with you. And now our second question, how has, how has Jesus solved your biggest problem? How has the death of Jesus offered atonement for your sins? Remember what Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus died, Jesus shed his blood to solve your sin problem. Well, how did that work exactly? Let's go back and dig around in the Old Testament for a while. In the book of Exodus, we have the story of God's first great rescue. He frees his people from slavery in Egypt and leads them into the wilderness. And all of that is, of course, pointing forward to Jesus, but we don't have time to pull that thread today. So let me just dial in on one detail of their wilderness tour. Now, here's what's happening. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. God is laying down the law. You know, the Ten Commandments and all kinds of instructions for how to live as the people of Yahweh, the creator God and Lord over all. Now, while Moses is up there, God tells him to ask the people of Israel to freely donate some of the stuff the Egyptians gave them as they were leaving Egypt. Stuff like gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, fine twine, linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, lamp oil, spices, and precious stones. It's pretty cool that God had the Egyptians provide all this stuff. But what's it for? Well, God tells Moses in Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, he says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. You see, God wants to be with his people, but they've got this sin problem. So he's making a way, this sanctuary, a tabernacle, it's going to one day transform from a nomadic people's tent to the temple in the promised land. And it's here that God's presence dwells in their midst. Now, what follows in Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch is a lot of details concerning how to build the tabernacle and how to construct the furnishings and where to put everything and who's going to be allowed in and what they will have to do daily and seasonally and annually. All of this in order for God to remain present with them. Now, we easily get bogged down and lost in all of the details. Some of them seem archaic or even random, but nothing is random with God. And he knows exactly what he's doing. More he knows exactly who all of this is pointing to. In fact, there's a theme through scripture, and it shows up maybe most pointedly in the New Testament book of Hebrews, that Jesus is better. He's the better prophet. He's the better king. He's the better priest. He's the better tabernacle. He's the better sacrifice. And we could study each of those things for the rest of our lives, but today, we're just zooming in on Jesus as the better sacrifice. And the key today is remember that this, this is going to help us understand how Jesus has solved your biggest problem. So here's what God's doing through the tabernacle. God is making a way for his presence to be among his people, right? 
Check out this diagram of the inside of the tabernacle as you listen to Hebrews 9, 1 to 7, describe what's there. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Remember your big problem, right? Sin. Sin separated the Israelites. It separates you and me from the presence of the God of holy love and justice. So what does God do? God makes a way. And in the Old Testament, the way was the tabernacle, and it was a system of celebrations and sacrifices and laws. Now, the law kept the sin in front of the people. The law reminded them that they needed the mercy and grace of God. And the sacrificial system provided a way for them to get rid of their sin. So let's deal with this idea of sacrifice. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project defines a sacrifice as the death of one thing so something else can have a new life. In the Bible, blood represents life. In Leviticus 17:11, we read, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. God's Old Testament plan was for his people to offer these regular sacrifices so that the blood of the sacrifice would restore their at-one-ment with God. And there were several different types of daily sacrifices, burnt, peace, sin, purification, guilt offerings. If you add up all the prescribed sacrifices in Leviticus, it would be an annual total of 114 bulls, 37 rams, 1,063 lambs, and 32 goats that would be killed on the altar. That's 1,246 animals a year. And those were just the sacrifices the priests were required to offer. In addition to all of those, every family brought regular sacrifices. And then, then there were special occasions. For example, had we been there when Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings 8, we would have seen 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep be sacrificed. Now, all of these daily sacrifices and these celebrations, all of these offerings came to a climax on the Day of Atonement. On that one day, one guy, the high priest, gets to actually enter the most holy place, that second section of the tabernacle. This is the only day, and he's the only person allowed in there. And what's he doing? He's bringing the blood. You see, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would choose two perfect goats and bring them to the courtyard of the tabernacle before all the people. Then he basically rolled the dice to determine which goat would be sacrificed and which goat would be the scapegoat. And the high priest then sacrifices the one on the altar. And he uses the blood of that sacrifice to both cleanse the altar and then he carries it into the most holy place and cleanses the ark. And after he cleansed the most holy place, the high priest then confesses the sin of all the people to the Lord as he places hands on the scapegoat. And then that goat was sent into the wilderness. That goat was symbolically carrying away the sins of the people. And finally, the priest would offer burnt offerings on the altar to make atonement for the people, to restore again a sinful people to at one mint with the God of holy love. For now, this will all have to repeat itself 
year after year. So then hear Romans 6.23 right now with new understanding. The wages of sin is death. Indeed, a whole lot of death. It's almost impossible for us to wrap our 21st century pet-loving Western minds around the fact that this sacrificial system, the slaughter of thousands of animals, was God's good plan. Some of you are going to be sick if I keep going. But the point is this. The innocent animals died for the guilty people. Those sacrifices were an in-your-face reminder to the people that their sin was serious and it must be atoned for. But all those animals, all those sacrifices, they're just a shadow of a better way. God was going to go to great lengths to provide that better sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. And God vividly points forward to this perfect sacrifice at many points in the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis 22, God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And so Abraham climbs a hill, and it's near what will one day be Jerusalem. And he does so with faith that God himself will provide the lamb. And God does provide. He provides a ram. Lamb and ram are different. And even Abraham recognized that there was something future going on because he named the place the Lord will provide. Someday, a lamb will be the sacrifice. As another example, when God initiates the first Passover, he requires that the blood of a lamb be spread on the doorposts so that God's wrath will pass over the Israelites, killing only the Egyptians, and thus making a way for their exodus from Egypt. And so the obedient Israelites are saved by the blood of a lamb. Listen, all this bloodshed isn't meaningless. That God requires a sacrifice testifies to his holiness and justice, and that he provides the sacrifice testifies to his love. Now, the way that we see established in Leviticus in the Old Testament, it's ultimately a lesser way. Hebrews 8.5 calls it a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. And so it is. And Hebrews 9 explains this, starting in verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The author of Hebrews is saying that all those thousands of tabernacle and temple sacrifices, they can cease for the better the perfect sacrifice has been offered and has been accepted. Jesus is the solution to your biggest problem, once and for all. Now, we took a really long way around, but we're getting back to this question. How has Jesus solved your biggest problem? And that answer is summarized in the title of this message, Perfect Sacrifice. He has solved our sin problem because he has lived a life of perfect obedience. All those Old Testament laws got broken all the time. Nobody was perfect. Nobody is perfect. And so every year, every week, every day, they would need to offer more sacrifices because they just kept on sinning. And then Jesus came along. And Hebrews 4.15 tells us that in every respect, he has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. And so Jesus' sinless life, his 
perfect obedience to the Father, made him like those unblemished lambs and goats and bulls, but better, so much better, perfect. Jesus is worthy to go to the Father on our behalf. And the second way Jesus has solved our biggest problem is through his suffering. Don't forget Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And so instead of you and I standing before a holy God and receiving our just wages, Jesus hung on that cross and he took the penalty. And as he hung there, Jesus cried out a lament from Psalm 22. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this wasn't the cry of a man in despair. It was the cry of a perfect sacrifice suffering under the wrath of God. What we deserve is separation from God. And that is the penalty that Jesus bore. Theologian Wayne Grudem writes, Hour after hour, the anguish of his suffering went on. The dark weight of sin and the deep wrath of God poured over Jesus in wave after wave. Until at last, Jesus cried out with a shout of victory, It is finished. Hebrews 12.2 says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus voluntarily sacrificed his perfect life to solve your biggest problem. And it's fascinating to note that there are no chairs listed among the furnishings of the tabernacle because the work of the priests, the need for those sacrifices, it was unending. But that's no longer the story. Jesus, he's taken a seat. His work is finished. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Now there's so much more to be studied and said, but I really think that Hebrews 10 sums it up for us today. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The perfect sacrifice of Jesus has sanctified you. It's made you holy. And so you're pleasing to God and you are welcomed into his presence. The perfect sacrifice of Jesus has written his law and his words on your heart. 
The perfect sacrifice of Jesus has turned away God's wrath because when he looks at you, he sees the blood of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews goes on in chapter 10 saying, therefore, and we know when we see that word, we've got to pay close attention. You see, the, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, it's just not this nice thought that we have. So church, here, here is where we're going to respond. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As much as the theological study of Jesus' perfect sacrifice is driven by our minds, the person and the work of Christ should always transform our entire lives. Not only our intellect, but our hearts and our hands as well. We must respond to our Savior. And so thankfully, here, the author of Hebrews has given us direction on how to respond to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. He writes first, Let us draw near to God in full assurance of faith. Do you believe Jesus died for you? Do you believe his perfect sacrifice has forgiven your sins? then know that you are invited into the presence of God. The most holy place has been opened up to you. Around here, we use the phrase, find your chair, to talk about making time in God's presence a priority on your calendar. Do you spend time there? He also writes, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And so grab on tightly to that hope because Jesus is faithful. I know we're ending today with his sacrificial death, but you know that's not the end of the story. The work accomplished by his death gives us a sure and certain hope for what he's doing next. So are you holding on to Jesus or to something or someone else? And the third thing that we're encouraged to do is let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. We say it all the time, but I'll say it again. We're not meant to travel this faith road alone. Jesus' perfect sacrifice means that you and I were brothers and sisters. And as good news, it's not just our good news. We've got to do the good work of taking his love and his ways into all the world. Every office building, every school, every holiday party, every neighborhood. But no Christian can thrive in those environments without the encouragement and the building up from other believers. And so who's spurring you on to love and good works? And who are you encouraging? Put simply, in response to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, which next step will you boldly take this week? Find your chair. Hold on to hope. Meet with someone. Whichever step you take, remember that it's made possible because of the blood of Jesus. He has solved your greatest problem. As the old hymn sings, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus.